Hello, welcome to episode 86 of Phil's Breakfast Metal. This is my second episode looking into the discography of avant-garde black metalers, Psy. Uh, this will be the second final part. In the first half, we did the, the first six studio albums. In this half, we'll be doing the second six of them. Um, this side of it, I'm far more familiar with these albums, many of which I have touched on the podcast before. So apologies if I'm retreading a bit of old ground, although I don't think I've spoken about any of these albums in well over like two years at this stage so um yeah <laughs> you can skip over if you're if you already <laughs> know exactly what i'm gonna say on any of them and also thanks for anyone who's got this far i imagine um it was kind of a dedicated listen sire i know a um a divisive band among the the black metal crowd so we're gonna kick up like pick up where we left off so the last time we covered was a imaginary sonic scape from 2001 which brings us onto kind of a slightly quiet period for the band through the early 2000s. So between that and their their next album, they released two splits, um, uh, one with Necrophagia, which uh, Mirai was currently playing in. I think he had a, did about a 10-year stint with the band around this period doing keyboards and stuff for them. And on the split, they just play a Necrophagia cover, so kind of an odd release. And they also do a split with... Um, Japanese kind of uh, black and thrash band Abigail, who contribute two originals. They contribute two Venom covers, um, Butching Hour and Black Metal, which uh, there must be so many Psy playing those two song versions at this point. I haven't gone through to kind of um, to count. Um, interesting thing about Abigail, they feature uh, Yasuki Suzuki, who is regular live basis for Psy, obviously with the size three-piece lineup and Mariah doing a lot of uh, keyboard work and the bass on the studio albums. They needed someone live to play bass, so he would regularly fill in for the band. But yeah, though, not particularly noteworthy releases. The next next album of theirs, though, is, is kind of, I think, a logical kind of extension of what happened on the last album. Um, Gallows Gallery, they're, they're kind of... Well, it's it's interesting. I don't like. I always get confusing myself on the the number of the albums because strictly, um, uh, like one of the albums in the previous episode we covered was an EP. Um, the the kind of ghastly funeral theater EP is yeah, obviously it's only like twenty five minutes long. But size naming convention is each release spells out the band's name S I G H repeating, and ghastly funeral theater is is kept in that trend it's much like um it's much like the morbid angel live album that begins with e following their trend of naming naming their albums alphabetically anyway getting off topic here so gallows gallery they're they're kind of like sort of sixth or seventh album the real big like there's a real big lineup change um we have new drummer uh Junichi Harashima joined the band. So, um, I'm not quite sure what led to this, but Satoshi has been moved on to being full-time bass player for the band, also taking some guitar duties on this album, um, sort of obviously sharing the job with, with uh, Sinichi as well. So, for a brief period, they're a two-guitar band, and we now have a new drummer in the lineup who has a... He is a far more um, obviously metal drummer. Like, his style is far more kind of brutal and fast, whereas uh, Stoshi's a great drummer, but he he w- did seem most comfortable in the kind of slower rock beats, whereas, um, 
Whereas uh, Junichi is just so much more comfortable with the kind of blasting of like the fast double kicks sections. Like previously, oh, actually, I think he's still with the. Um, I don't know, no, no, he's no longer with them, but he was in the death metal band Hell Child um, and a couple of other kind of extreme metal projects. Oh yeah, the, the, I, I can't believe I've got this. Um, he he was for the the kind of I believe the first two albums the drummer for the excellent um, avant garde progressive metal project Gone in Ish, um, who put out two absolutely fantastic albums in the early two thousands. This incredibly varied, incredibly technical, uh, but quite extreme progressive metal. And actually, uh, I completely missed it until a couple of weeks ago. They put out one of the best albums of 2020, right at the end of the year, sort of late December. Uh, their new release, absolutely fantastic. Gone Ish, like, definitely look him up. So, say, you know, if he's playing for Gone Ish, he has got serious kind of chops as a drummer. Anyway, what's odd about this, though? They brought in this incredibly metal drummer for the first and only album probably ever that Sai will do, which is entirely clean vocals, where the previous album was this kind of quite experimental progressive rock. This is very much a hard rock, heavy metal album. Um, the intro, well, the intro, the first track of the album, uh, Pale Monument, is just this really catchy rocking like verse chorus structure song now the song structures are all pretty normal in sound they're quite predictable other than like having quite expansive and interesting middle eights there's still a whole level of size weirdness despite the clean vocals Mariah's style of doing clean vocals is not is still far from traditional and his level of um, layering lots of kind of keys and other instruments over this kind of hard rock heavy metal gives it quite an odd edge because for a lot of bands in this style of um of metal you wouldn't be using a lot of keyboards but on this album we got the, the usual lineup of the kind of two guitars and drums but then mariah is playing on it keyboards sitar glockenspiel uh, uh something i can't <laughs> can't name tabla um bells samples adding all sorts of weirdness like in that first song um pal Pale Monument, there's the amazing moment of like these massive like church bell sounds just before, like over this kind of big organ noise just before the big solo comes in. And in this album, they go completely mad on the lead guitar stuff, getting in a whole host of amazing lead guitarists. Um, uh, Nicholas Sundin of Dark Tranquility joins them, Gus G of Firewind and like Ozzy Osbourne fame now. Um, Gunface of uh, the Red Chord joins them as well. Um, we we get a load of a load of guest saxophones. So on on the kind of the second track of the album, in a drowse, um, there's these brilliant passages of melodic saxophone. And because this is an extreme metal record from the early two thousands with saxophone on, you've got fifty fifty chance of guessing the uh, guessing who's playing it. And in this particular case, it's Bruce Lamont. Um, Famously of Correction House, but someone who's done guest stuff with uh, Nac Mistium, uh, Sophia Carnage. Uh, he was on those Howling Sycamore albums. Me and Rob were were very fond of. Been in a whole a whole kind of whole slew of bands. Absolutely excellent saxophonist, and he's kind of whereas you know Jurgen of Shining would be the other like kind of <laughs> commonly used one. Jurgen's quite experimental. Got a bit more of that John Zorn thing about them. Bruce Lamont's very kind of 
melodic and um, yeah, more more fitting for an album like this. And he provides some excellent melodic lines. And then there's a couple of guest vocalists, Killjoy of um, of Necrophagia joins them, and also Metatron of um, the Mies of Asphodel, regular sort of collaborator with um, with Sai Mirai going back and forth on a lot of his albums as well. Um, the Mies of Asphodel interestingly have kind of quite a parallel career with Psy. They're a lot more recent. They only really got going in the late 90s. But they have that same kind of outsider look at black metal where it's very, their sound is so uniquely their own and they do that kind of mash of genres. Like there is no kind of no kind of sound off limit to them as a band. You can see why the two are somewhat kindred spirits. But yeah, he adds some of his, his brilliant deep-voiced narration to to the sound. Um, on top of that, absolutely beautiful album cover. Possibly their best. This amazing picture of um, a, a, a man with a noose around his neck sitting on a horse under this this like brooding orange sky like a kind of it's a black outline on the orange background it, it looks spectacular but they sort of give no hint of the the the, the kind of sounds you're going to get inside the album like it's very very melodic it's weird and there's there's strange ideas in there like um tranquilizer's song is a quietly like kind of off-kilter interlude um but then we go into Midnight Sun, which was as like this supremely catchy chorus. Um, yeah, and as I say, just just tons of great lead guitar work, but with that kind of more traditional structure, but still layered to the amp degree because it's Psy and they can never never make anything simple. Everything's got to be layered over and over. I don't know if this is their first, but I believe they've at this stage moved to Candlelight Records, so bigger kind of distribution for this one as well so i think this might be a kind of turning point for the band where they start getting a bit more attention with that kind of series of guest musicians a lot of which were quite big in 2005 and particularly Gunface, like you know that's kind of height of red Corps power at that stage so you know this this is probably bringing in some momentum for the band for me it's a bit too much of a departure from their their kind of more traditional sound like as much as i really enjoy it they're having no screen vocals at all in it doesn't quite fit but it's still extreme enough like um you can see why uh they need to get Junichi in on drums because like despite this being all clean vocals the previous album had a lot of screams the drum performance in this is way more metal like there's loads of really fast double kicked doing a lot of kind of like quite aggressive cymbal work in places it's more the guitars and vocals that keep this in the kind of more melodic realm the drum performances is quite intense if you've never checked this one out certainly worth a go it keeps size trademark uniqueness up there it's just yeah it's just the least obviously sigh album they've put out i'd say <laughs> Darkness, that's it 
The band's next release will be 2007 Hangman's Hymns uh, Musicalis Execution, which is kind of the most straightforward, raging, black and fresh album they've ever done. Amazing following on from, like, kind of almost directly in reaction to the last two albums. The band have suddenly gone fully extreme again with a drummer who finally they have a drummer who's truly capable of it um the lineup's exactly the same from the last album and the drum work on this is just this fantastic super fast double kick like intense like really clear performance throughout and the songs are this great kind of um like continuation of like lots of lots of three to four minute long straight ahead fast angry tracks primarily driven by Mariah's screaming vocals. There's really sparse use of keyboards on this. It's primarily guitar, bass and drums and scream vocals. Although when the keyboards are used, they're using this really epic sort of interlinking way where loads of sections will be bridged by these kind of almost like these brief almost classical interludes with a, with there's a whole um guest choir on this album so classical interludes with these big choral vocals and what's really great about those those classical interludes is they will kind of prelude things that are about to happen next in the album so say the the album has that kind of like angry sort of black and fresh nature to it but to sort of break that up we have a load of um, really excellent guitar solos. Uh, Sonichi outdoes himself on this album. They're not like the most technical, like flashy things in the world, but they have that nature. You know how the solos on Carcass's heart work? Like a couple of them are the absolute like high point of the song, like a track like Buried Dreams. There's a lot of that going on where it's not the fanciest solo, but it's just this kind of bluesy perfection they're just like really lovely bits of lead guitar once again we're joined by a couple of um guest lead guitarists um gunface most noticeably but also we have like a guest trumpet player appearing on three tracks of the albums there's some um, additional to the choir some clean vocals uh by oriel gregory of giant squid which yeah sound fantastic on it um yeah and what's really great is these kind of this the progression of this album, as I say, it's a lot of, like, kind of fast-to-the-point flashy tracks, but with these interludes, the album has a real sense of epicness. And the really amazing thing they do with this is throwing um, elements from all over the album back into other places. So the, um, the first proper track of the album has, like, a quite noticeable, catchy chorus. But in the middle of track three, Me Devil... That chorus is spurt like breaks in breaks the chorus like the second repetition of the chorus of Me Devil in half. So like like sort of a burst of that chorus splits the music and then there's a return to the the chorus of that song and then a return to that chorus and back and forth. It's a really intense idea. And then in late track, uh, the memories as a sinner. Uh, there is like a quite again another quite noticeable chorus melody at this point in the album over like this real blasting heavy section but then in the ninth track salvation and flames that exact same vocal melody lyrics that entire pattern reappears over a much more melodic section so there's this constant back and forth referencing and actually that melodic section is in the kind of uh cry um outro to the first track of the album but just the kind of um, 
the the kind of keyboard melody of it. It's it's really amazing the way they sort of the albums split up like this. And it's just it's just like little extra things to discover as you get more used to it. All these tracks can be thoroughly enjoyed just on the face value of like, you know, the excellent kind of riff writing, um, a really kind of intense aggressive vocal delivery. Like this is the most like kind of Mariah's gone for it as a vocalist, I think. Um in many years at this point, just like just brilliant screaming, no, no kind of um, messing around with any cleans. That's that's done by the choir on this, um, and it really works. And it's and it it's so different to the previous two albums. We also get um, get a like a guest appearance in a kind of weird way on this one. In the inlay booklet, there's some some odd artwork, and one of the models for it is. Um, is uh, Mika Kashiwama or Dr. McCannibal, uh, who, who is uh, Mariah's wife, um, who will later be the fifth piece of the puzzle for the for the final few Psy albums. But yeah, she appears um, this early on just as just as a model on the album, which is a really, really interesting sign of things to come. For me, I, I think this album is actually a really good start point or introduction into Psy's sound. Um, like when I got it, uh, I for years been quite into the, the sort of middle period phonic kind of sound that like sort of boiling down the kind of thrashier, angry elements of like Cradle of Filth into kind of quite a kind of catchy package. And this just felt like a band turning that idea up to eleven. Like that, this for me at the time I got it was was just a band doing phonic sounds so much better than them and it's really interesting sort of going forward because i i love this album so much i immediately went out and bought another two psy albums and was not expecting the kind of avant-garde weirdness to come i thoroughly enjoyed it but yeah as i picked up other material i just wasn't aware the band they were i thought they were kind of this you know angry black and fresh thing but no actually there is a there is a lot, <laughs> a lot of different sounds to come. But yeah, this is a great start point for the band. It's um, it's so much more straightforward and digestible, but it does have those avant-garde flourishes, those those moments of like classical inspiration and those kind of oddities of the structures of the songs really works fantastically well. Once again, another absolutely um, excellent cover. The the image of the three hooded figures, uh, executioner-type figures, singing from hymn books over this kind of really cool um, pattern background. Yeah, it look, looks fantastic. And yeah, I can highly recommend you this one go, even if the rest of size can't
So the next thing Psy will release a year later in 2008 is a tribute to Venom, another fucking set of Venom covers. Um, the thing with this, though, is it brings the incredible entity fully to the band of Dr. McCannibal, um, who is just a mind-blowing person. Uh, she previously, like, her credits in music are a couple of... Um, sort of guest, well, not guest vocals, I think she was lead vocalist for two bands who never quite got out of the, the demo stage. Then she has an excellent, like, low scream vocal, which works so well playing off of Mariah's kind of more mid-range kind of black metal voice. Um, she's also really solid, clean singer and great uh, saxophonist, always playing uh, alto sax on uh, every one of their albums from this point onwards. So Cyan now solidified as a five-piece, like, guitar, bass... Uh, vocals and keyboard, vocals and saxophone, and drums, and that that will be their lineup from from that that point onwards. Also, outside of her musical achievements, Dr. McCannibal is a um, associate professor of physics. She, um, she I, her education, I believe, was out in the U.S. and um, yeah, she is kind of amazing. I, uh, yeah, a fundamental physics, uh, condensed matter physics researcher, apparently. Um, and having some experience myself uh, in getting into physics academia, that is no small feat. She is an incredibly gifted, like, individual of, like, the strings of a bow of being involved in some incredibly inventive black metal albums, but also on the forefront of, like, an incredible difficult field of research. Uh, the other thing she brought back with her to the band was that flair for stage gear, um... Where they, like, you know, spent a few years looking at more of that kind of 70s prog rock kind of look, the, the jeans and cool sunglasses. That's now all gone. We are back to, at this era, cool suits and incredibly fancy cloaks and different stage garb. Everything's on fire again. And the new edition is shit tons of blood. So... Two years after that tribute to Venom, we get 2010's Scenes from Hell, the first proper album to feature Mechanical. And if you look at the back cover, there's um, her in this, like, white angelic costume complete with wings and Mariah in this very kind of stylish trim suit on this kind of uh, church altar surrounded in flames. Like, this is very much the look they're going to go for. And their live show from this point on becomes incredibly striking. The Not least because there is a very good-looking woman with a saxophone covered in blood in the middle of a black metal band, which um, I remember seeing images of in 2010 and being like, what the absolute fuck is going on here? I've got to know more about this band. Um, yeah, so Scenes from Hell as a whole... It, Sadly, despite like kind of that insert of excitement, it's a slightly disappointing album and not really a flaw of the writing. So, the really interesting um, kind of angle they took with this release was to um, to bring in a whole horn section. The previous album had a whole choir. This album, there is a massive guest horn section. So, trumpets, multiple trombones, tuba, French horn, oboe, accordion, and clarinet added in, and then like a flute slash piccolo player. Um, Spoken words on this. One time they're not done by Metatron. We have Dave Tibbet, um, 
who some of you may know from the British experimental rock group Current 93. I've got to admit, I'm not particularly familiar, but so we've got quite a different approach to the the kind of odd narration passages like Metatron has done in previous albums and would go back to doing later on. And then some guest vocals from Cam Lee. So probably the only album Cam Lee and an entire horn section's on. That's That's definitely interesting. So... As you can imagine with that horn section, there's much more classical bombast over this one. The song structures are much more complex, but they remain short and contained. It's one of Sai's shortest albums, actually. Most of the songs, you know, coming in about the five-minute mark, but incredibly experimental again. Like, gone is that straightforward thrashiness of the uh, the previous albums. And um, Sinichi's guitar solos... Um, take a massive backseat in this one. They're quite low in the mix. The real problem with this album is just an annoying mix. It's the the guitar tone's really kind of buzzy and just wrong sounding and sort of the drum and bass recording is quite muddy. The 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 kind of orchestral vocal and saxophone work over the top sounds fantastic. Oh yeah, that's the thing I guess I didn't mention is the loads of saxophone as well as all the horns in this. So yeah, a lot of a lot of new flavours to to size sound on this album complete with a kind of new cover artist I think they'd be working with for quite a while in the form of Eloran Cantor. This album, I think, was the first time I became familiar with his work. Um, he's done too many album covers to list now. Seriously, Google his name and um, and his work. He is one of, I'd say, really one of the modern greats. And although some of his covers are, are less um, sort of less respected than oh what's the name of the Bellwitch guy but less respected than that guy's um i'd say he has far more variation to his style he um yeah has a like you can tell it's him but he does vary up quite a lot and like i think we're unlikely to overuse his style anytime soon it seems, seems to be kind of uh something that he keeps it different enough like it's still really exciting 10 years after me first getting into his work also what i really like that he's done on this cover is it's this scene of like um sort of hieronymus bosch style like madness playing out of the field but over this field loads of skeletal figures and reapers and stuff but in the foreground we have like these these two like vampiric looking figures dancing while like a skeletal hornsman's playing in the background, and off the horn is hanging these uh, bits of cloth that make up the Psy logo. It's really cool. What this album, I'd say, like the real high point in it is track six, Musica in the Tempora Belly, which has this amazing back and forth between these like heavy, aggressive black metal sections, these massive bursts of classical horns, then Dave Tibbetts' um, kind of narration passages coming in at one point in the middle of the album sort of the like a kind of more intense passage comes to an end and we just get this kind of fast like uh violin type melody underneath um underneath his narration that gives us this real sense of urgency and the song plays out and then he delivers this fantastic like piece at the end of it that seems like extremely kind of apocalyptic and over the top it just works so well with like the bombast of the song yeah i've just shut the booklet and there's also like a whole guest uh, violin and cello section on this album which really adds to it and as i say the orchestral moments of it are captured so well noting uh, the cd booklet saying well worth picking up on vinyl or cd um the internal artwork of it is very abstract and interesting and there's just they're a band there's a lot of interesting details around um 
yeah, they, that that really worked so well, and it, and I, I really like the sort of tone they set out on scenes from hell. The kind of I don't know the, the, that hellish nature of it really works. Like the combination of classical and intense black metal, kind of going back and forth, gives this really kind of confusing over the top feel. As I say, it's just an album. Let like every other element is perfect. It's just let down by a really irritating production and what stops it really coming across as one of their sort of all-time greats. But still a, a like really good listen and you know if you do enjoy Sai and haven't checked out this album, very much worth going back to. So 
So I think I mentioned I'd covered Sai uh, before on the podcast, but the thing I didn't quite clock until I just started recording this is I've covered three albums of size on the podcast before, and it's the final three. So the last half of this podcast is going to be slightly me repeating ground I've gone over before. So if you'll give me that little indulgence, um, some of them were quite a few years ago, so uh, it might, might be slightly different coverage, but more or less I'll probably be saying the same things as in those old reviews. Anyway, this brings us on to um, their 2012 album, In Sonimphobia. I mean, I think they did a bit before this, like uh, there's the Curse of Inzaghi EP, which guess what band it features another cover from? <laughs> um, but yeah, again, not, not a particularly noteworthy release and a split album as well, but... Next thing really of note is the Insomnophobia EP and uh, album, sorry. And this one, firstly striking, is another Eleanor Cantor album cover, which is just utterly kind of mesmerizing, incredibly kind of detailed, painted picture of this um, sort of pregnant royal figure walking a carriage of, of dead babies through this kind of market stall area in the street to this like view of adoring public um with like a small child in the foreground holding a skull a very strange and striking image i believe the album is a partial concept album the the first nine tracks are a uh, as you know no sort of track three through to nine are a sort of story about um i believe like fear of going to sleep i think that's what the the title stands for so they kind of have this whole like sort of nightmarish theme but they've kind of encapsulated that between sort of two just cool tracks at the start and two cool tracks at the end that have nothing to do with the the main theme which is fair enough um uh, it totally works in terms of the flow of the album this album like where scenes from hell was quite a dark and brutal album in its ways that is completely gone on in somnophobia it is exactly the same lineup before kind of sort of similar staff involved but the sound is so much cleaner and brighter. It's it's an incredibly like beautiful and melodic album in all the ways. Um, like the first two tracks, Purgatorium and the Transfiguration Fear, are all full of these amazing bits of like lead guitar and really bright keyboard melodies. Like they're they're both pretty cool as well. Just being quite kind of flashy and uh, rocking tracks, but like. With just some amazing stuff thrown in there. And also, a slight change from the previous album was Mechanical was just doing her kind of really low guttural death metal voice. In this, she does like primarily, um, primarily kind of like sort of clean vocals, switching back and forth between the cleans and the screams. Actually, I say primarily, but about half and half, I think, uh, thinking about it. Um, and also, obviously, her saxophone works in there. The there's like in that that track, the Transfiguration Fear. The second half of it is just a mesmerizing piece of music, where we get this this middle this middle section where we have a sort of like solo trade off. We get a beautiful kind of like Mellotron type keyboard solo, a lovely bit of saxophone, and then um, uh, Sinichi comes in with like one of his, my favorite guitar solos of his and and then that all plays out into this completely over the top like kind of almost western meets sci-fi theme with this like hand clapped beat over the top of it it's um 
<laughs> I think my girlfriend decided it is like the second half of the song very much feels like giant robot like fighting music. It's it's incredibly over the top. Like and that's kind of the theme, like a major kind of musical theme in the album is just completely turning Sai's weirdness up to eleven um, and really leaning into their more melodic elements, although still very much with a black metal backing to the album. So after those two, like the really great opening two tracks, we get the opening theme, Lucid Nightmare, which features Metatron doing this uh, kind of his usual quite uh, dark and creepy narration over a um, over this kind of atmospheric piece. And then we get the the kind of the string of long, weird songs in the middle of the album, starting with Insomnophobia, which is this amazing kind of piece with a lot of like industrial elements in it, mixed with amazing saxophone work. Like this is one of the most showy bits of like mechanical stuff. Like she has a huge amount of stuff that adds to the atmosphere. And when this comes to a close, we get loads of that hail horror hail style um, uh, kind of atmospheric noise compositions i mean i think meant to really give the impression of someone struggling with with their sleep pattern and struggling to know what's real lots of like the 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 kind of noise sections are incredibly intense and jarring and they follow every track in this middle section of the album they get some amazing stuff as it goes on as well um far beyond the in-betweens a really decent like melodic piece and then the um like the amazing kind of final part of that section amongst the phantoms of abandoned tumbrils we have this kind of um i don't know quite how to describe it this is a brilliant accordion melody throughout it and trumpet as well but it really has this kind of i don't know puts me in mind of like scenes of like france or something but then that's mixed into kind of the older doomier style of size stuff with these really slow drawn out passages and then so building up to faster sections for for the kind of the the vocalist to let loose a bit more and having these heavier moments interspersed with these very um very melancholic melodic moments the the accordion passages are very very sad sounding um kind of piece yeah uh, i think absolutely fantastic the only thing that the real issue with this middle section is those those kind of atmospheric interludes i find hard to get through on regular listens to this album like i do find myself often skipping them on the first couple of listens they're quite interesting and add a lot but after a while i don't know i found them to get on my nerves quite quite a bit but then the album picks up right at the end with Fall to the Frowl and a Quail. Fall to the Frowl is a straight up kind of, um, kind of like another kind of more flashy track in, in similar vein to the opener Purgatorium um, with some great bits of like lead guitar and lead keyboard work in there. And then a Quail is just, just bizarre. A Quail seems to be them doing their absolute best to throw as many music genres in a row as possible it goes from like kind of traditional classical into like a folky bit into a jazzy bit into like a, a death metally bit into a rock bit and it's just like it's an eight minute string of these so it's it's a touch incoherent but it's a really fun journey and despite being a little incoherent the the kind of transitions work this isn't full-blown kind of that mr bungle like just like hard to deal with noise it's actually quite catchy it's just one of those things you come away from the song you're like i could not explain what happened in that journey too too many things at once even on multiple listenings overall i think insomnophobia is one of their stronger releases um despite being how um 
like despite sort of I guess being so bright and clear, it's still got a kind of heaviness. It, just being so avant-garde and being so weird, it, it keeps it, it, that level of difficult to deal with and confusing. Um, and I really like that interplay of being very light and beautiful in places and very heavy and extreme in others, or just downright kind of like difficult to deal with in those those kind of like instrumental kind of atmospheric sections. This the shame with this album though is and Mariah kind of spoke about this a lot in the following years is it got an absolute critical kicking when it came out. I like a lot of really snotty reviews. And I don't know, I think we spoke about this on a recent episode or I spoke about this on a recent episode of there was a thing in the early like that kind of period like early 2010 where it was the real rise of that internet culture of the angry, shitty review. Like, the kind of, here's a someone getting a bit pantomime angry at something, um, and that's going to get us hundreds of, you know, hundreds of views on your YouTube video. And metal journalism fell into a bit of a hole with this. So I remember, I remember stopped buying Terrorizer for a while, because around this same point in time, I remember reading a load of reviews in it that were just... Like, like, like that kind of pantomime angry, but just fucking stupid. Like, a review of a blotted science album that gave it a crap review, a crap score, because it didn't have any sing-along choruses in a, in a tech-deaf instrumental album. You're like, well, fuck you. Like, I know it's an instrumental band. That Your review doesn't help, and your kind of faux kind of anger at it isn't helping either or like um i think that's the same issue i remember this was the issue where i stopped picking up it also had a review of an esoteric album a a band who primarily put out 100 minute long double disc funeral doom albums and saying it was too slow and the, the reviewer didn't really like doom it's like why the fuck are you reviewing this but what, what the point I'm getting at with this is a load of bands in the vein of Psy, stuff that was very avant-garde and experimental, would just get these absolutely furious reviews, but like, you know, really kicking them for, for being weird, for trying different stuff. Um, I felt you have disbanded around this time because they just got so many negative reviews, or at least that's that's been alluded to by by the front man. I don't know if that's that's truly truly the case but i certainly remember seeing some very snotty kind of write-ups of their work and and i think it, it was born out of one those reviews were quite funny to write you can you can really you can really give an avant-garde album a kicking with with no effort it's, it's very easy to insult them because they do something weird you know you remember the weird kid at school <laughs> very easy to insult um and the, the kind of other side of it is they take time to get. So in a culture of, like, quick reviews, you're always going to struggle to um, to put the time into an album like this. There the won't be something you fully understand on first listen. Like, maybe the first couple of tracks are quite immediate, but especially that middle section where things get a bit longer and slower, like, it's going to take time to pass. It's, it's, it's complex music. Anyway, the, the, the upshot of all this is um, Mirai then kind of very much moved away from this sound of the next album because he was like, well, right, well, everyone hates this. I'm not doing it again. And actually, fans like myself really enjoyed it. But I remember him having this thing like, uh, in the route to the recording Grave Awards, sort of saying on Facebook, like, 
Why wouldn't any of you tell me you liked the album? I thought everyone hated this one. The next album's nothing like it. Um, so yeah, like, I guess I guess the, the moral of this story is if you really like an album, even by a medium-sized band the way Cy are, reach out to him send him a message saying he thought it was great like it, it i think it it generally brightens musicians day they might always, not always get back to you but uh you know send a facebook message saying you thought whatever bands album you've just picked up is awesome especially if it's a bit of a weird one or or one that maybe you're seeing a lot of negative angry reactions to send reach out and say something nice uh, i think musicians really appreciate it and and the feedback's good for them like you know as long as the feedback isn't horribly negative. <laughs> uh, anyway, yeah. Insomniphobia, another really good start point for the band, I think. If you're someone who the, you do have an appeal in the kind of the weirdness and the kind of use of saxophone in this kind of black metal setting, if that appeals to you, Insomniphobia is really the one to go to. I'd say, I think this is the one where the, the saxophone gets most showcased. Like, Mechanical really, really shines on this one. And it has some of the most creative song structures to date. So the big event sort of following on from this album in uh, 2014 is Psy would have the first major lineup change, um, or at least first member sort of leave the band since original drummer Kazuki 
um, left back in 1990. So after, well, from 1992 to 2014, so, you know, 20 plus years of the band, uh, Sinichi Ishikawa leaves them. Um, there's kind of not a lot of explanation around this. Um, there, All I've seen is Mario's post is some stuff about uh, Sinichi sort of turning up to gigs with his guitar out of tune and his sort of performances getting worse which is amazing because like his guitar work on Insomniphobia was some of the best he'd done yet like he'd been on a real run particularly with uh, um, Hangman's Hymns and that album of playing some of his best leads so yeah he an integral part of the band was was lost at that point and uh, I was really worried for their future hearing he'd gone because it was a big part of what I liked about the sound but they found a replacement who is just so perfect um, in the form of Yu Ishishama, um, sorry, Yu Ishama, um, who has the one-man black metal project, Candenza, who are the, one of the more Psy-influenced bands going. I started listening to a, to a few of his albums recently, not not dug in uh, far enough. Um, but they're, they're kind of like, if one person was attempting to do all the elements of, of Psy, so they've got an excellent kind of Mariah-esque scream, um, but they've programmed the drums. So how, and they've done that cool thing with programmed drums where they're not doing like, you know, we're trying to make it look like real drums. Uh, they're, they're like these massive industrial-sounding percussion over this kind of very complex um, avant-garde black metal with a real touches of, of classical... Um, classical keyboards and so on and fantastic shredding lead guitar you is a really really impressive really fast player so like i'm not going to spend too long on those albums because i need personally spend more time on them but if you want more of this sound go there he's got three albums projects currently on hold probably because of the time putting into um putting into sigh but uh yeah looks like they look like they're going to be a real treasure trove of um, interesting riffing and more more in this kind of style, which is really exciting. But his first contribution to to the band would be 2015 Grave Ward put out on Candlelight Records. So Grave Ward, you could tell things were going in a different direction. As I say, ahead of time, I said this album's a bit of a reaction against Insomniphobia. They've got a different cover artist in. Yeah, again, another fantastic cover. This brilliant kind of... It's a dark, twisted graveyard scene in this kind of dark blues and grey palette with this kind of dancer-like figure in this kind of striking golden orange sort of striding through the graveyard. Yet again, it's it's another concept album, um, this time all about like kind of this hellish vision of the afterlife Um yeah, really kind of cool subject matter. Like, they're definitely sort of leaning into the horror with this one. Um, and, yeah, as I say, like, uh, you just fits into this lineup so perfectly. Like, the gone are the kind of real fancy leads of the previous album, and, well, really kind of melodic leads, I should say, and it replaced with this kind of, like, quite brutal shredding in places. Um and the whole, the kind of sound of this album is far more raw and rough and none of the brightness of the previous release. Honestly, again, much like Scenes from Hell, the biggest letdown is actually the production. It's a bit, it's kind of a bit scratchy. I, I don't know, that word doesn't really work. But there's something about it that just, it, it feels, um, 
it feels almost like a quite polished demo rather than a kind of full piece where we've gone from like if you look back at the last um, last couple of albums of size like a lot of them felt like these massive like orchestral kind of things whereas um they've walked away from that a bit with although adam matlock's back playing accordion and clarinets on this um and actually adding some tenor saxophone as well um we haven't got any any kind of orchestral backing there's no strings on this no horns um all the additional uh, appearances are extra guitars and extra vocalists. The album starts with with kind of some of its its kind of more more aggressive material, but then when we get to uh, we get to a track like sort of um, Grave Ward or Tomb Filler, things get like full blown folk metal in the chorus. They're these real. Um, these real big folky melodies, which are kind of a bit of a change for Sire. They're not a band that really play around with that um, that sound so much. Um, things take a bit of a slow turn around the forlorn and molesters of my soul, and uh, those tracks slightly drag the average of this album down. But then, like, real pick up again for Out of the Grave, featuring fantastic clean vocals from Matt Heafy of Trivium, who you would never recognise on this song. Like, his voice just sounds totally uh, alien. And I wish you'd play around with this more. It's from 2015, an amazing year, where he guested on an Ishan album and a Sire album. It made me think there was something more coming from the guy, but sadly he's stuck with that kind of Trivium sound, which I, I can't can't really do anymore. It's, it's just that band and no longer for me, really. Talking of guest performances, though, there's all sorts of cool people on this one. The final song has Sakis Tollis, frontman of Rotting Christ, on it. Nicholas Carforth uh, is, is on a track. Um, uh, Frederick uh, Lekerak, uh, I'm not sure how to say his surname, it's a very French-sounding one. The bass player of Dragonforce appears to do to a guest guitar solo. Um, who knew he was really good at guitar? Uh, I guess could have guessed he's in Dragonforce, those guys. These days, really can shred. Um... Uh, yeah, on top of that, we have Metatron's back again. Like, yeah, so just a real star-studded lineup, um, and and this really, really works. Um, and then we we get to the, the bit of the album I absolutely love. So as I say, the first half of it's got some great moments, and then some slower bits that don't don't quite come off as well. But then it hits this three-track run at the end of like this just fifteen-minute period of absolute perfection. There's the absolute unbridled weirdness of the casket burner which has their kind of like you know venom celtic frost inspired riffing but then just mirai going all over the place with these really melodic brilliant keyboard solos like and and doing his favorite thing of like his eight different keyboard effects at once interspersed with yo dropping some um really brilliant bits of lead guitar and then um message of a messenger from tomorrow starts off with this two minute passage of fully kind of um morricone inspired epic kind of western melody stuff and then loads of kind of like 
clean vocals uh, provided by um, by Dr. McCannibal. At this point in time, Dr. McCannibal is is pregnant, I think, with her first child. So I don't think she records any screams on this album. Possibly just a bit too intense. She just does clean vocals. But I really like her cleans on this song and uh, interspersed with Nicholas Carfoff is, is on this track as well. And there's this really melodic, kind of epic second half to it after the melodic and epic intro but a slightly different form of, of both like yeah just just absolutely melodic uh brilliance then final track uh dwellers in the dream is just this absolutely amazing kind of um like real like flashy number where it's it just like just like just to pick up the pace for the final end like three minutes of just excellent riffing a really catchy aggressive chorus where mariah's playing off against uh sakis scream uh yeah and then just got a really cool solo in the middle of it kind of straightforward like first chorus first chorus track but after the kind of weirdness of the two before it's just a brilliant way to bring the album to a close as i say there's nothing there's no flaw with grave ward it's just beyond a slightly irritating production like the whole package of the cd is fantastic the writing of the album's really great barring two songs i'm less into it, yeah sadly it's one of those albums that i think with some slight changes to it it would be up there as one of my favorites but it's just let down by a few little details <laughs> So around like at this point, it's probably worth discussing kind of the live elements of the band because there's a lot more live videos from this point onwards. I think in 2014, just before the release of um, 
Grave Ward, they were touring with Emperor. I think it's on the Emperor tour that there's a horrible incident where one of Mirai's stage props explodes and burns his hand. It does result in this fantastic photo of this giant burst of fire on uh, in front of him. But yeah, not not a happy ending to that. I, I think he's fine now, but it definitely did some damage at the time. Um, as a band, they are looking incredible at this stage. Uh, you how it comes on stage in these amazing kind of long flowing black robes he's quite a tall slim guy so he has quite an imposing presence on stage whereas Mirai is far more like a sort of a shorter guy but with um a huge amount of kind of presence and and at this stage in time he's he's not playing keyboard so much he's just the vocalist um I think on a lot of their their live settings like a lot of their, their keyboards are on the backing track because unsurprisingly you can you can put everything everything he does um front and center and then you have mechanical in various like utterly over the top outfits At this point in time as well i say she's pregnant she continued touring with the band pregnant and had this this kind of amazing outfit that was like had loads of sort of cutaway in it and, and like completely exposing her sort of uh pregnant belly but she would be like covered in covered in blood and playing saxophone looking like this looking like I just completely unique. Uh, yeah, Sai definitely have this amazing look to them. Paul Satoshi just looks like a guy who's turned up to play bass. He's sort of relatively short-haired guy. Uh, he doesn't have any kind of accoutrement to his look, so he's always sort of the odd one out of the four at the front. Um, obviously, uh, Junichi, the drummer, like he's behind the drum kit. Also, he often wears a cowboy hat, so he has that that going for him. Uh, but yeah, like Sai are a really interesting sort of live band. They do fall a bit into that trap of... Um, I say with a lot of those kind of bands who have so many symphonic elements, um, having to have a lot on the backing track. But I, I feel they make up for it in a lot of ways. And there's a main stuff like there's a great video I watched the other day of them playing. I think it was a, a victory for Dakini off the first album, where they they sort of got a slight rearrangement of it. it was saying talking in the live episode, you've done less and less by bands. Um, and where it has that section in the middle was like the really kind of um nasty sounding shredding guitar now we have like we have a keyboard player we have a sax player so while that's happening um that shredding guitar is being restructured by you to be somewhat more melodic but no no less speedy but now we also have some backing saxophones and backing keyboards and it now sounds like this far more coherent whole of the song and and there's a lot of those elements added throughout the songs so there's the slight rearrangement slight change up of solos um I, I, I like that Yu puts his own interpretation on a lot of uh, uh Sinichi's work rather than just trying to purely recreate it something I'm not touched on as well is Throughout this period in time, like, well, throughout this kind of whole discussion, Mirai has been doing all sorts of stuff with other bands. He He's appeared on three uh, Necrophagia studio albums. Um, ages ago, when we did the Agalot Deep Dive, we talked about the band Self Spiller, which both both him and Dr. McCannibal appear in. He has the the kind of band Cutthroat, which are far more kind of, like, aggressive, fresh stuff. I believe that's, that's finished now, but it's something he was briefly fronting. Um, all sorts of things. It actually has his own uh, solo project that he did like a demo with back in '95, but you know never went beyond that. I don't know, don't know quite the reason for splitting that off as a separate stream from the main band. But um, yeah, like he's he's always working on stuff, which is kind of incredible because 
because there is so much like going on inside. I'm amazing as time for anything else. And actually, beyond that, um, I mentioned before, he's added a lot to other bands in terms of keyboards, turning up on um, four Mies Vassfidel albums, playing keyboard parts, even even composing a full song for the murder of Jesus the Jew. Seeing uh, having a quick scan, I'm sure something else are. Oh yeah, and he added vocals to a really cool track on uh, Aeonan's Extants, who are cool like Greek, um, slightly progressive death metal, progressive black metal band. So there's a lot going on around Psy, not just the the sort of the core elements. Although they they are a kind of continuously touring band. Sadly, I've I've never never got to see them live. I was at Hellfest when they were playing one year, but I couldn't get in the tent in time, which was was a shame. But um, I definitely want to see him live at some point there. Like, I, I really want to see these sort of rearrangements of a lot of these songs. Anyway, all that being said, this brings us to the the final album um, they've put out so far. Obviously, still still working on things. I think we've got another album probably in the near future if they keep up their usual kind of efforts of putting out an album once every two or three years. But you may remember um, back in 2018, they're... Their 12th album, Air to Despair, made it quite high on my and Rob's list of, um, you know, albums of that year. And actually, amazingly, because it came out in November. So this was one that really, really sort of grabbed my attention early on. And as I've reviewed it so recently, I won't go into too much detail on this one. Um, notable things, there's been a move of label to Spine Farm Records. Whereas previously, like, their last, like, eight were on Candlemas. Uh, Candlemas, Candlelight Records. Uh, I hope I haven't been saying that the whole way through. Uh, that would be really stupid. Yeah, but anyway, the big thing about Edge of Despair um, that, that improves on everything they've done before, actually, is it is the best sounding album. It is the best recording they've ever got for the band. Possibly not the best songwriting they've ever had, but it is easily the best sounding album. Really really amazing guitar tone like perfect capture of the drums and the the kind of saxophone keyboards and uh mariah also adds flute and piccolo to this album are all neatly in the mix rather than on some previous releases where they've kind of dominated the mix a bit these are these are all worked in really nicely the album starts in amazing fashion with alifa this this seven minute epic with all like incredible variation, use of multiple different vocal styles, uh, all sorts of interesting kind of keyboard passages. And then we get uh, uh, Homo Homi Lupus, uh, which is a far more kind of, as I say, a far more kind of black and flashy number with like some brilliant catchy kind of lead guitar passages throughout and a really memorable chorus. And then things go kind of insomnophobia weird in the middle of the album with Heresy Part 1 through 3, uh, which, yeah, brings some real kind of, like, experimental flair to the album. And it just, it's a nice kind of, like, best of all the things they do. There's some there's some great use of saxophone throughout. There's some very kind of over-the-top um, classical bombast in the keyboard sections. There's... Like great use of lead guitar, like used really on fire on this album, and helped so much by having a really nice guitar tone. Like on Grave Ward, he was somewhat let down by just his lead tone wasn't that great, and it it kind of made like it was just hard to make because the album before the lead tone had been absolutely just perfection. 
Right. And so, you know, this one was great because it really showcases his, his talent and he was just captured so much better on this one. Absolutely fantastic cover art as well. I, I think uh, when we reviewed this in 2018, we went on about this. Um, it's this amazing picture that gets more and more creepy the longer you look at it. Um, I forget who the... Oh, no, it's, it's another Elrond Cantor artwork. Um, but yeah, it's it's a picture of this... this um, this woman standing in a window sort of with this kind of vague smile on her face watering some plants but as you you stare at it you notice like the plants she she's watering are dead um there's like sort of patches of blood or something on her dress there seems to be like broken glass and a shadowy figure in the background of the picture and a strange series of um of kind of bits of paper hung up on the wall kind of like a one of those like things where you're getting a crime thriller where someone's drawn a load of uh, lines of string between pictures it kind of looks like that and it's just this um i don't know I, I find it a really powerful picture of like the like implied story behind behind this woman who seems to be in a kind of deluded kind of daze like state it's really interesting and it, yeah for many I, i've been saying like been looking for like the good start point album and if I'm honest, it probably is Air to Despair. It's, it's the one that's just most immediately got an amazing sound to it. As I say, possibly not the best um, best songwriting ever, but it's good. It's really good. There's, like, the middle of the album has some fantastically catchy moments. Say that opening track and then the massive 10-minute close of Air to Despair have some of their some of the more impressive like experimental leanings and song structure like uh like yeah sort of dalliances into really complex song structures but with completely natural flows between them yeah i really love air to despair and i i honestly with size stuff as i was saying in the first half there's such an evolution between each album or such a, a change in approach between each album and then a band that never did the same thing twice i, I find it really hard to pick absolute favorites like i, I really love most of their releases as i say the only one that um I probably won't revisit much is uh, Scenario 4, Dead Dreams. And then and that's purely because it just sits as a bit of a, a transitional one, like the one where, oh, well, possibly one even where they were just following a sound that isn't so much my thing. They're a, a band that varies so much, like maybe it is weird to like absolutely everything they put out. Beyond Dead to the Spare, they haven't put out much recently, but as I say, put out an album normally every two or three years the band have never really taken a break so I, I think we should be expecting more music in the near future and and I, I couldn't begin to guess what it's going to sound like so I hope with these two episodes I've given you sort of some insight into this kind of weird anomaly in the black metal scene of a band who have, have been around forever constantly inventing themselves and trying new things but never with say the likes of Ulva completely moving away from their original sound um like they've always been embracing uh, new ideas and that but while keeping a core of well never escaping the fact they really love venom like <laughs> I, i'll never get past that quote of uh Mariah thinking that he'd much like he can't understand why a crowd wouldn't much rather see them just play uh <laughs> play venom covers than play their own stuff and while it's it's sort of a ridiculous sentiment, I I can see you can clearly see his love for that band over the years. I love that this is such a 
a kind of logical build off of a lot of that first wave black metal sound, but taking that little bit of instrument uh, influence from early death metal, like particularly the very raw early death metal and and a lot of the early like uh, Norwegian black metal scene and Greek scene as well. They do seem to have a fair amount of crossover with the the early Greek black metal scene, and just make this really interesting unique sound that no one's really no one's even really kind of copied or been massively influenced by there's not a huge amount of bands i think of that you would go oh yeah clearly their core influence is psy despite you know they've been around this long and i guess it's the thing i was saying as well why i feel like so kind of bitter they're left out the conversation of great black metal so often because they've put out 12 albums now i wouldn't say any of them should be rated below about a 7 out of 10. How many how many black metal bands can you think of, like from, say, the Norwegian scene, the total equivalent time period, who have put out more than 10 albums, all of which are really solid? Like, there's very few. There, there are certainly those that have done it, but not many bands have either kept up that level of kind of constantly changing their sound, constantly putting out new and interesting music, having, you know... They have still having some of their best releases in their later catalogue, um, while you know, kind of remaining relevant and remaining heavy. Like the bands that have really done that to a large extent are the ones who, I would say, moved away from metal or gone in, gone in very like different directions. And I like that Psy, despite all the weirdness, have still kept that edge to their sound. Anyway, I'm rambling at this point. Um, as you can tell, I really love Psy, uh, and I hope. I hope I've at least convinced one of you to uh, to get into this band. They really are worth the time, even if they, yeah, even if it might take a few listens to get past their stuff. Um, there is there is so much in there to like. Okay, I've spent enough time on this band, so I think I'll cl- bring it to a close there. Uh, as usual, uh, if you want to get in touch, get uh, email me at philsbreakfastmetal at gmail dot com. Or uh, you can get in touch on Facebook, Phil's Breakfast Metal, or at Breakfast Metal on Twitter. I tend to check all those accounts fairly regularly, so hopefully should get that to you pretty soon if you get in touch. Um, And do let me know if any of you got into Psy. I've been really wanting to to plug this band and this depth for a long time, so I, I hope it's brought at least one or two of you on board. Anyway, thanks a lot for listening.